0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher. And I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a very interesting book published by Bloomsbury titled The Intersection of Fashion and Disability, a Historical Analysis which does exactly what it says, which is delightful because we need to think about the intersection of fashion and disability because we all wear clothes. Um, disability is very much something part of most people's lives, even if it isn't right this second, it probably will be at some point. And the history of both these things doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot anyway, and very much not together. So it's incredibly exciting to have this book to go through, all of these and many other things. And I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Kate Annett Hitchcock. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the podcast. Well,
0: Miranda, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here
1: today. I'm very glad to have you. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so my name is Dr. Kate Annett Hitchcock, as you've already said. Um, I am originally from England, um, but I've lived in the United States for, oh gosh, about 35 years now. Um, I do travel back and forth a lot and lucky enough to have a career that's allowed me to do that. Um, I want to start off by saying that I am. I am not. Um, noticeably disabled myself um i've had some temporary disabilities um but i am not i do not count myself as as part of the disabled community so i want to get that straight right up right off the bat um i am have been working in uh the fashion fashion academia for almost as long as I've been in the states on and off took a few years out here and there. Um, have always but I, my bachelor's degree was in art history um, and I got that at the University of Manchester and um, so history is something that has always fascinated me but then my research subject my field of research has been since about the year 2000 in the intersection of fashion and disability because that's what I decided to do my doctoral dissertation on when I started my PhD at Virginia Tech in the United States. And I didn't know it at the time, but um, Virginia Tech had actually been one of the sort of pivotal universities in the late 60s, early 70s, when there was a lot of what we call extension research going on. Um, Extension and outreach is something that... um, is is very particular to what we call land-grant universities in the US. And traditionally, every state was given uh, the funding for a land-grant university back in the late 19th century. And it was a way to put research back into the community, so basically translate research and apply it to the folks who needed it in the communities and it it was uh agricultural to a large extent but then there was engineering as well and then clothing and textiles extension was was very um was was part of most of these universities programming really from the 1940s into the 1980s and then Things changed a little bit to become more sort of fashion business, and now there's there's fashion programs spread all over the place. So anyway, that's a a long rambling intro to how 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 I came to do this subject, and I um, I'm very interested in um, how people who are disabled have have coped with finding clothing. Um, I actually had a part-time job when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, what, making clothes um, for my landlady who was disabled. And I just started thinking about, you know, the something I hadn't really ever thought about before and about access to fashion, not just physically, but I think emotionally as well, because fashion is such a transformative thing. You know, we... we we like to fashion ourselves in some way or another. Um, But anyway, more on that a little bit later. Mm. So why I wrote the book was because I had collected a lot of information for my dissertation. And I had a limited amount of pages. And my, (laughs) my PhD advisor told me that if I didn't stop writing that she wouldn't be my PhD advisor anymore. So so I, um, I stopped and now I have all this stuff that I collected that couldn't go in the dissertation. And I thought, I've got to get this out there. I've got to get some of this information out into the public eye. And 2018, 2019 was sort of a time where we started to see mainstream brands open up and make clothing and accessories more available for the disabled community there also started to be a lot of activity on social media and so i thought well it's i as a as a sort of sort of semi-trained historian um i feel that that historical context was something that was missing from the conversation Um, you know history is really informative it gives us like i said a context to work within it's not like the subject just popped up out of the ground one day and said hi here i am you know we've we've been people have been working in this space for decades um and there have been disabled people for centuries and there has been fashion for centuries and and at some point the two have had to have come together and so it wasn't just a case of me getting all of this information out there, I was actually genuinely excited about going back further than I'd done for my dissertation and, and start to explore a little bit, you know, prior to the 20th century. Mm.
1: Thank you for giving us that backstory. I think it really sets up a whole bunch of things for us to talk about. Um, And one in particular, I'd like to start with, because this is something you've been working on for quite a while and the sources are such a part of it. Um, With any historian, of course, you know, how do you deal with sources? How do you find things? It's always a fascinating topic, but particularly when it comes to clothing that may or may not get preserved, right? It can be used for so many things in ways that maybe it doesn't come down to us in archives. Um, And also with a particularly less explored area of fashion, that's maybe even more likely to be the case so i especially want to ask you about sources and both kind of what ones you used for the book and how you went about that and whether in this process of doing this kind of research you might have any tips or recommendations to other researchers about how to approach these kinds of sources
0: yes absolutely um gosh it was a It was a very interesting process. Um, And I guess starting out, I did want to try and find as much primary data as possible. Um, And what I decided was that I was going to try and contact as many of the the bigger fashion, I'm using air quotes here, or, or museums that had when notorious or famous for good fashion collections start there because a lot of the research that I had already done was very much a sort of trickle down like someone would send me in one direction and I'd find somebody else and go in another direction and um so it was a it was a lengthy process that's how I started out um I would I do want to preface this by saying that the the history of the disabled community has not been well documented, and the history of fashion has largely ignored disability. <laughs> so, right off the bat, I knew I wasn't going to get much from you know the regular textbooks or archives um, or collections that. Uh, oh, so um, I had to really think about actually think about terminology to start with because um, it's um, it's a it's an unfortunate but um, you know some of the terminology that has been used for disability in the past is not the least bit acceptable now so but then I started thinking well you know I had to go back and, and look at or how, how were people with disabilities regarded in the 19th, 18th, 17th century. And so I went to the Library of Congress terms and started just listing out all of the terms, a lot of which I can't even say on a podcast. Um, but things have changed, right? And the same thing with fashion. Fashion is is sort of notoriously difficult to pin down. It's clothing, it's garments, it's accessories. It's also fashion as a verb, right? So we think about fashioning ourselves. Um, so in that context, I had to think about how would how would people, you know, there's tailoring, there's dressmaking, there's stitching, there's sewing. There's so many different terms. So I had to sort of nail down whole list of terms i was going to use for searching um i do mention that in the book as well if anybody's interested i can i can give further information on that um when i started looking uh so i was, I was looking at documentation i was looking at art um i was looking obviously at primary artifacts And then just as I got going and started making appointments, then the pandemic hit. (laughs) So I had this list of wonderful people who had said, you know, well, I think I might have some things. I'm not quite sure what they are, but you're welcome to come and have a look. And I had gotten funding from three different fantastic sources and then everything shut down. (laughs) So um, I was able to pick it up again in well as late as let's see 2021 the end of 2021 was the I think the last visit I made to a museum over here in the UK but um it was slow going and I you know a lot of the things that I'd wanted to see at some of the bigger museums I never ended up going to because it was um you know it just it just wasn't possible and it was I I got a lot of feedback from curators though Um, And some of them ranging from, yes, I've got X, and I know that it was used for this purpose, and I know who wore it, all the way to, well, we've got some dresses that have been altered from the early 19th century, and and we just thought it was bad dressmaking, but and I'm paraphrasing here, right, but uh, maybe maybe it was um adapted as the term that most people use or altered to fit the wearer um and so it, it's sort of like a needle in a haystack um mm. i i also so then i i also for for um i went back to i, I live near durham north carolina and there's duke university which has a wonderful medical history library. And the folks there were fantastic. And I was able to go back and look through 17th and 18th century books to see what was actually written in the medical literature about how people had dealt with, um, you know, what, and and again, air quotes, what were known as deformities of bodies. Because there was actually a, a very the 18th century was was incredibly concerned with how upright you were as a person and so there there's a whole lot out there on uh, assistive devices i guess we could call them now were being invented in the hundreds literally throughout the 18th century to encourage an upright posture because if you were a fashionable Air quotes again. Person or someone in sort of the upper echelons of fashionable society. It was very important for you to look a certain way. Um, so that's you know that that is just an example of I had would never have thought about a medical history library, but you have to when you're doing the first dive into something, one has to be very sort of creative and exploratory and also listen to what people are saying I, I found most of my visits and most of the things where i was just like literally turning cartwheels when i found something came from people who said you should try x i would never have done it so i have I have a lot of thanks on on the sources Mm, no th- those are
1: great recommendations thank you for sharing them um while we're on the topic of finding garments that um could have been adapted could we discuss a few examples that you include in the book where there were adaptations made for a particular person to wear them and then how they changed the garment kind of became a mainstream sort of style
0: absolutely yeah do you want do you have one in mind or
1: I mean, there were a lot of cool ones. Yeah. So, whichever one or two you'd like to take uh, us through, I think will be great.
0: Well, I I do love the story about the Raglan sleeve. Mm. Um, I, you know i I hate personally. I hate the fact that war gives us stuff that we wouldn't necessarily think about. In you know, I just I think war is like the worst possible thing. But every now and then, there is sort of a flurry of innovation. For example, in the American Civil War, the um, after the war was finished, the U.S. government gave uh, issued all wounded soldiers who wanted them a prosthetic limb. Um, uh, so there was a, there was a lot of um, accommodation made. For people who had lost a limb, and there were a lot of them around, and it's interesting that a lot of those soldiers actually didn't want to wear the prosthetic limb because they saw having lost a limb as sort of given to the cause kind of thing, and they were very proud of of their disability. Um, but but just before that, going back to the the, the war theme, um, Lord Raglan, um, who was a for, for those people who know their, their sort of mid-19th century British history, he was one of the leaders of the uh, group of English soldiers, the cavalry, that went out to the Crimea um, and disastrously fought the Crimean War. Um, he I think he died out there soon after. But he had been in the Battle of Waterloo Fighting with uh, the Duke of Wellington in the early 19th century, and he'd, he'd lost his arm sort of just below the bicep. Um, and w- as far as I could tell, the company Aquascutum, which is still around, um, which makes basically outerwear, raincoats that's how they got started anyway very, very highly respected English company based in London. Um, someone there decided to re-engineer the attachment of the sleeve of his coat to the rest of the coat. And that re-engineering apparently made it easier for him to move, and especially when he was riding his horse with one hand, um, having lost one arm, and having to have a sword as well. Now, I haven't gotten any further with the actual mechanics of that. It it still sounds to me rather impossible, but every source that I read said that this raglan sleeve was re-engineered specifically for him before he went over to the Crimea with his with his cavalry to enable him to have a better mastery of of riding and fighting at the same time. And of course, nowadays, the raglan sleeve is something that has become ubiquitous, um, especially with casual wear. Um, With, uh, you know, many sports, a lot of them in the U.S., you find uh, the sort of um, standard jersey that's worn actually has a raglan sleeve. It's just more, um, it has more ease of movement, for the arms especially if you have movement over your head and outstretched and behind you a little bit it is it's a much more accommodating sleeve especially when it is made with within a knitwear structure mm. um yeah, I don't want to get too into the weeds in terms of clothing <laughs> design for those people no, who are not familiar with those terms. But that's I think it's really interesting that that ended up being something we see every day.
1: Yeah, no, it, it really does. And, and definitely not something that we go we see and go, ah, oh, civil war. OK, um, but as much as maybe we don't want um war to be the impetus for all interesting or good things uh the civil the us civil war is not the only war that comes up in your book um, you also talk about world war 1 having quite an impact on
0: fashion and disability so can we talk about that a little bit we absolutely can um so it yeah it is kind of cringe making to think that a lot of innovation doesn't happen until you know people are in are in a real bind but um it, it the, the war itself obviously the result of that is that there were just more people with disability on the street um it's you know especially in europe um people i don't think had seen a large population with disabilities with you know there were amputees around there were people with what we would call PTSD now, but you know, it was known back then as shell shock, and so there were just just more people with disabilities after the war. You also had the flu epidemic in the in you know across the world, Spanish flu. Um, there was a lot going on at that time, and 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 the war affected fashion fairly considerably in terms of you know what we talk about a lot in sort of traditional fashion history is how women, for example went out to work and took on a lot of the jobs that men had been doing who were sent to the front um, and that really precipitated the vote. If you look at when most countries gave women the vote in the Western world, it happened about that time or just afterwards. Um, so there were there were some things that, and, and, and never to go back, right, uh, the 20s was a time of real freedom for women's fashion. Um, but, also, what happened, um, one of the things that I write about in the book was the rise of what I call social entrepreneurship efforts that were very much textile-based. And so uh, for soldiers with both physical and sort of emotional cognitive disabilities as a result of the war, uh, one of the great therapeutic activities was to work with textiles in some way or another. Embroidery was a, a very, very important way. It's, you know, it's like you know that if you get if if your mind is um not restful, that getting sort of lost in a very repetitive activity can be extremely therapeutic. And so there were Many activities, or many people who set up these wonderful sort of therapy based craft, um, uh, I guess organizations. But there was one that, when I found this, was one of my cartwheel moments <laughs> when I found <laughs> out about Annie Bindon Carter, who was a sounds like a real force to be reckoned with. She was, um, this was all based in Sheffield in the north of England. And um, Annie started a company called Painted Fabrics Incorporated. And it had started off as a volunteer effort. She was uh, an art student and she'd gone to, I think it was called Warncliffe Hospital, uh, which is where a lot of the soldiers were coming back to, who had who'd, who'd been sent back from the front because they were severely um, disabled by the war. And she realized that she could have them paint through a stencil onto a piece of fabric and she started off sort of rigging up a, um, a contraption that if you applied it to a man's the stump of his arm with a brush he could actually use that to paint through the stencil onto the fabric and this gave people obviously a, a sense of achievement a sense of accomplishment um, that they could actually take part in, in a sort of value-added activity. Um, it became a huge commercial success. She actually formed a company, a for-profit company in the early 1920s. And it went through the 1950s. I think the company folded in the late 1950s. But she had customers all over the country. Even the, the Queen Mother Apparently bought dresses made from painted fabrics, fabric, for the princesses Elizabeth and Margaret in the late 1930s. Um, the The sales were very, very well attended. Now, these these were not cheap goods. Annie knew how to do her marketing and her pricing. <laughs> but I think one of the wonderful things about this, in addition to this, um, the, the, the very high craftsmanship of the work was that she created a factory setting that was absolutely appropriate for the needs of her workers. And this extended towards providing um, housing for the workers and their families that was universally designed. It included providing a little garden area so they could grow their own vegetables and crops, and I think they had chickens and, you know, a few other things. So it was it was a home. It was a community. It was a universally designed community with a purpose-built – I think the, the original construction had been an ammunitions depot. And so she had this wonderful big shed that she converted into a printing shed, which is where the work took place. Um, so in other words, she met the workers where they were not where she needed where she wanted them to be and i think that is a supremely important lesson that oftentimes we we talk about providing things for people but then we don't really look at where where are they at how can we meet them where they're at so they can do the best job that they are capable of i think that's a lesson we can learn from today well
1: and i think you talk about that almost getting extended as we move through the 20th century, um, because you discuss how we do at least mostly move away from the idea you mentioned earlier, that kind of fashionable meant literally being upright, and fashion was meant to conceal whatever was not upright and make you as upright as possible. And you talk about how in through the 20th century, you know, building on some of this work you've just described perhaps, fashion starts to move away from that um, into perhaps something that's more about celebrating the the body, the, the many different bodies, um, rather than saying everyone must be this one exact thing. But that didn't happen kind of in a vacuum. So can you tell us a bit about what you think are the contextual factors, the changes in society that are allowing this transition in fashion to happen?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, one of my sources and in- Canada um at the the um Royal Ontario Museum talks about uh, putting together one of the first exhibitions and included the work of Izzy Camilleri with Izzy Adaptive and she said that that was the first time she had heard the term you go from an I shape to an L shape and that just sort of – she said it blew her mind when she thought about it and it blew my mind when she said it because, you know, the I shape is the standing figure, right? And and as soon as – obviously, there we're, we're really keeping it to someone seated in a wheelchair, but then it's an L shape. And so how do you then design for that change in shape from that upright to the seated position? So – um going back going back to your question, um, these sort of broader contextual factors, um, I think they really started there was there was a rehab component back in the 1930s that that saw a transition from people have to be institutionalized and helped in some way to oh, dressing is actually a very good way. To help people achieve independence, like the, the just the pure activity of putting on your clothes and then being able to take them off again, and and having myself having um, had many broken bones <laughs> in my youth, I used to ride horses. Um, I know somewhat of what they speak. You know that is that is getting dressed and getting undressed is something that that is critical, right? so it's it's part of you know what they call activities of daily living and and there was a realization in the 30s and it was mostly with um, kids who had polio that we can actually teach people to become more independent and and the activities of getting dressed and undressed were actually crucial to that. So there was a sort of seed planted and then um, in the just after the second world War, the person who was really instrumental in the US was a guy by the name of Dr. Howard Rusk. And he is known as the father of rehabilitation in the US. He had been an army doctor, came back, started up a rehabilitation unit in uh, what's now New York Langone Hospital. Um, And he noticed that when people were leaving, uh they they weren't being given or they'd gone through rehabilitation but they weren't being given any instruction about clothing you know not just the wearing of it but the care of it and maintenance and and the designs just weren't really appropriate and so he hired um helen cookman who i talk about in the book and there's a lot of a lot of good work going on about helen cookman at the moment um and she was a fashion designer who was deaf Um, he hired her first of all to do a research project which then turned into a book which then turned into a whole organization called Functional Fashions and that all so we see the transition from rehabilitation to fashion in about 15 years right from like the late 40s to the early 60s. Um, Alongside that the I think there was, you know, at least in the US in the 1960s, the civil rights movement put into play a a need for people to be recognised who had not previously been recognised in society. And so it's it's going from conceal to reveal and not just in terms of individual, I need to conceal my disability. It's like, no, people didn't want to be concealed and hidden anymore. They wanted to be revealed. They wanted to be part of society. Um, And that led then to not just dressing, but self-expression. And and if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the places that fashion fits into that, at the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And and if you if you're gonna self express, fashion is a really, really good way to self-express and self actualize, even though clothing is at the very bottom of the pyramid. But fashion provides this other layer that that allows people to reveal themselves, you know, and they don't need to necessarily reveal who they really are. They can disguise themselves if they want to, which is a whole nother rabbit hole to go down, but but it's about revelation. Um, but prior to that I mean if you if you can't even find a a pair of basic trousers that fit you and that you can wear then trying to get fashionable on top of that is almost impossible and I think that's 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 sort of been where we've been going the last few years is to build on that progress so that stuff isn't purely functional anymore but Fashionable if people want it to be that way. I mean, there's still plenty of people who just need to find the functionality. Um, But we've been opening up and building the fashion around that as well um, Mm. on an individual and group basis. In some ways, sort of what you're saying is
1: very obvious. Like, okay, we can use clothes to fashion ourselves and do all sorts of things. And we're now opening up those opportunities. But I almost wonder especially based off of the historical scope of the book, are we opening up possibilities that used to be open, but then got closed? I mean, to some extent, your story about Raglan is is, is like, there used to be more possibility for clothes to be individualized. And, maybe we couldn't have used them in all the different ways to self-express. I mean, we have so much more technology that enables fashion to be more colourful, more stretchy, more everything now than obviously it used to be. But is there perhaps something around this idea that mass-produced clothing has influenced our ideas of what is disability and what who gets to be fashionable when maybe there used to be more scope because things were more individualised? Or is that just like deeply nostalgic and way too over-romanticized and and not actually historically the case?
0: Um, I think it's a really, really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that dawned on me as I was writing the book is that the ready-to-wear fashion industry as we know it, which has existed from about 1870, give or take a few years, um, is about standardization and profit-making. So while more people have access to this thing we call fashion with the um, coming of the ready-to-wear industry, what it did was because fashion companies had to start clothing a lot more people um, because there was this growing middle class and, and, you know, just everybody wanted to have access to clothing that they could buy literally sort of off the rack or ready to wear. in to be able to make that possible and profitable, companies had to start standardizing clothing. And so that's when we get standard sizing in the industry. It's It's not one size fits all, but it is a few sizes fit all. And on top of that, there was no... There hasn't been any allowance for really for different shapes until the last few years. And I think a lot of people would would still argue that there isn't allowance for variation in shape of body, even though none of us are actually built the way that the fashion industry has its size tables set up. Um, we are all asymmetrical. I mean i would i would even go as far to say everybody is on some kind of spectrum of shape and size none of which fits within the standardization needed for a profitable fashion industry but there we have it in in order to be able to buy what we need when we want it at a price we can afford which is what you know the marketing textbooks promote we have to cram ourselves into something. That's the price we pay to have things affordable and available whenever we want them. Um, that price back before ready to wear would literally have been, if I'm a fashionable person and and let's, let's get clear that fashion in the 18th and early 19th century was m- more about status in society like you, know, you had fashionable people they yes gar- garments and hairstyles and makeup and everything was very much a part of that but it was more of an identity so the people that were quote-unquote fashionable that went along with wealth and they could afford to hire tailors and dressmakers who made their garments individually to fit them. Um, And and obviously that is how the haute couture industry started with Charles Worth in the 1850s. That's what haute couture was about. It was about making garments to fit one individual person. Now, you you might have three or four people maybe buying that one thing, but those garments were made to fit them, and adjustments were made. So yes, we have lost that um, the sort of idiosyncratic detail and that uh, of tailoring and dressmaking. And I want to add here that one of the one of the biggest finds for me was both a an eighteenth and a nineteenth century tailor's manual. Um, which has whole chapters on what they call and again this language is obviously nothing we would use now but concealing and disguising the deformed body so they talked about men with scoliosis and men with sloped shoulders and hunched backs and and again you know the language is is what it is it's of the times but people were trained the tailors were trained from a very young age this was a matter of course. It was their job to make the clothing look good on the body, not to make the body conform to a pre-made pattern. And so I feel like we've sort of lost the skill. We've lost the individualization. In a way, I do want to add that I found in my research that a lot of the companies that started up in the late 60s and early 70s, which I would call sort of mom-and-pop companies, they were quite small, almost everybody who started a company was doing it because they had a friend or family member who is disabled. And they started making clothing for that person and then realized that there was a sort of entrepreneurial possibility there so it has all come out of the in the need for individual tailoring for lack of a better term to get mm-hmm. something that will fit people's needs and you know make them feel good at the same time so mm-hmm. i'd say once mass production comes along you have more people with access to fashion but the standardization that happened then ended up excluding People from fashion, if they didn't fit the categories, that enabled companies to make a profit. Mm.
1: No, I think that that's a very important point to add in. So I'm glad we've we've had a bit of a discussion of that. Um, if we think then about moving forward, obviously there is that entrepreneurial aspect you just mentioned, um, as well as people coming up with their own solutions and um, that sort of thing. But you also talk about in the book that. Uh, academia has played a role in this evolution in the 20th century and probably has some roles to play in the future as well so what do you think academia can help with as we make further progress
0: yeah i i think um you know as i mentioned there's been some really great research done um in the latter half of the 20th century and there continues to be really good research um However, things that are produced in academia don't always get out to the people who really need it. I think our biggest role in academia is training, training and more training. Uh, We need to adjust our curriculums, if we haven't already done it, to make them inclusive from year one. Um, we need to teach students how to work with people who have lived experiences because yeah, there's there's not many textbooks out there right now. There are a few good ones starting to come out, but there's not, for example, the equivalent of the Taylor's manual from, from 1740, um, which which has the technical information, but not just that. We we don't we tend to sort of do fashion training in a little bit of a vacuum um because it's always been sort of a top-down experience but i think we need to get out into the community and we need to encourage students to get out into the community and and work like i said with people with lived experiences um we also need to educate designers who are disabled um there's there's many companies out there right now like i just read about primark this morning who's starting a um a line of um they call it an adaptive line for of lingerie um and that that's god bless them you know whether or not you love primark um they do make things that are affordable and and hopefully they'll be accessible as well so but then you think about okay who who is the team of designers behind that line of lingerie Um, are they people who've had to be re-educated because i certainly know 10 20 years ago this did not come into the conversation of a four-year fashion degree and it needs to and and I I can't think I could probably count on one hand the number of students and I've been teaching over 30 years the number of students who've come through my classes who've had a disability that I have known about we just we just don't you know our infrastructure is not in great shape Um, we're, we're not very inclusive about teaching and learning. Um, We need to do better at textbooks. We need to do better about learning materials. Uh, We need to do better about incorporating inclusive examples when we teach. And then also um, for those on research tracks in academia, more research and more funding. The fashion area is sort of woefully underfunded as far as research goes. Um, and so but it, but it does you need money, you need time and you need people to be able to do good research, translational research that can really affect um, what's going on in, in the brands.
1: Mm. Very important um, areas to improve on. And, and I think it's helpful to be so specific about that, right? Be sp- so specific about hang on, here's what needs to be changed in a curriculum here. Here's what's need to be changed in the practical room um, because just saying kind of things need to change doesn't necessarily help us so I really appreciated that part of the book Um, I do want to try and end if we can on a sort of exciting optimistic note um, (laughs) because I think there are exciting optimistic things here so um, given kind of you're right in the heart of all of this so what are some of the most exciting or potentially promising things we should you know watch out for see what's happening when it comes to this intersection of fashion and disability
0: um sure i you know i don't know if i consider myself right in the heart of it exactly but i do keep an eye on current events that are going on um you know i see i see brands new brands popping up every day on a couple of feeds and i mentioned you know the the latest one was primark which is for those of you in the u.s primarks are how would you describe that a stalwart Um, of high street shopping
1: (laughs) yeah primark's a really big deal in the uk Um, that's the first thing to know it is like cheap but still somehow stylish clothing Um, and the shops are massive and they're everywhere (laughs) so maybe something like target but more like
0: stylish Yeah, yes, probably. Yeah. I don't know if there's a good equivalent,
1: but I don't know
0: if there is. For non British
1: listeners, Primark is a big deal.
0: A big deal. That's enough to suffice to say, Primark's a big deal. Um, There's um, so what I'm seeing, I think, as probably, again, I I will go back to um, cultural awareness as being the most important thing i mean the the fact that vogue british vogue last year created those covers in the i think it was the may or june edition with the different disabled models on the front they gave the story they created it in a beautiful way it was it was knockout it was really a huge deal and i think when you see that kind of awareness coming from the fashion press you see what's going on on social media that's when things fundamentally change i mean we we have been able to design and create functional clothes for years you know we can we can pretty much make anything we want but it is getting the industry to accept that this market is out there, it and and I think the social media campaigns, um, the movers and shakers of this area who have been really relentless about sort of staring down the fashion industry and saying we're here and we need to be uh, treated exactly the same as other fashion consumers because it's not about making something special it's about making everything more accessible and i feel there's a lot of people out there right now doing a really good job at that um i'm also very excited about the generation of students who i'm teaching right now the sort of early 20s um I think this generation is a lot more inclusive in their just in their approach, not not just to the topic we're talking about, but in everything. They've they've grown up with a lot of social awareness and a lot of social justice issues, just sort of swarming around. Um, and it's it, it they they that's to them social justice is really really important it's not just that it's, it's part of the furniture for them right it's not an add-on um they're also i mean we haven't talked about cert, you know the circular fashion industry and sustainability marrying that with the idea of more inclusive customers to me this whole topic is about sustainability you know sustainability isn't just about climate change and not throwing your clothes away it's about creating an industry that sustains everybody no matter who they are no matter what they look like no matter what their capabilities are i cannot continue to be an exclusive elite industry and i i do i do feel good about the current generation of students who are going to go on and hopefully become managers and CEOs of companies and really change the industry and its approach. Um, I will also say that I've seen a lot of people starting to consult experts being hired and experts who are disabled being hired by companies um, to ask the right questions. And how how do we do this? Um, you know, the, For me, the best thing for brands to do is to be you know, uh, for a Brene Brown moment to be really vulnerable and say, look, we haven't done very well at this. How how do we do better? And we're here to listen. And I'm seeing a lot more uptick in the amount of people who are consulting as well. So I think that's all really cool. And there's probably a lot of other stuff out there, but I can't think about it right now.
1: Well, those are definitely some cool things. So thank you for sharing them with us. Um, if I can ask, now that you've given us such a wonderful list of things um, to be hopeful about in the sort of industry more broadly, uh, could we do a bit of looking into the future on a much more micro level rather than the entire industry? Um, what about your work? Is there anything you're currently working on or looking to work on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us?
0: um i funnily enough i did actually retire last year from a full-time faculty position and there was there was many reasons for me to do that but i am still teaching um at north carolina state university i hope i can say that on the podcast but that's that's where i hang out um teaching part-time um i'm doing some talks slowly as sort of word gets out about the book um, very happy to come and talk to classes or groups of people and really love interacting. Um, I take on some individual clients to do some design work, which sounds a little counterintuitive based on what I just said. But I do like to help people who need some more sort of quite technical um, work being done so I do help out with that I don't have any scholarly work in the pipeline at the moment but I am getting more and more interested in the things that I didn't do in the book (laughs) I had to leave a lot of stuff out which was quite painful in many cases because I was I'm just so interested in 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 this whole area um so for example you know, developmental and cognitive disability i couldn't i couldn't really cover that at all my focus was almost entirely on physical disability and that history um but uh so so there may be yeah I, honestly i could take each chapter of the book and just expand it to a whole new book in itself um so we'll just we'll just see if if that's going to going to happen i am I'm, I'm not i'm not sure at this point but i really really enjoyed working on this one and and if it, if it helped anybody if it gave anybody some good ideas or just provided context a little more context for for the work that is being done right now um i i'm a firm believer in how much we can learn from history and and we can learn a lot and there's a lot of good sources out there Well, I will simply remind listeners of
1: the title of the book, uh, The Intersection of Fashion and Disability, a historical analysis from Bloomsbury, um, because I think there probably are a lot of things that listeners want to go read about in more detail. So, Kate, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: You are very welcome. Um, I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk to you about the book and and a few other things. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Bye.